Thank you. Um, when our two girls were small, we would take them swimming. What you do, isn't it? And uh, they had two very different approaches to the water. Uh, so for one of them, uh, we spent years on the steps at the shallow end of the pool, and there was no amount of coaxing or even carrying her into the deeper water that would, would make any difference, other than maybe some tears and distress, including mine. Um, so there she was on the steps for a couple of years before going any deeper, any further. She did eventually learn to swim um, with a very unique style. Uh, it, was, it was swimming without getting wet. It was like skimming a stone, like, you know, she was gliding on the surface tension like this, but it was effective in its own type of way. Whereas the other one, well, as soon as she could crawl or toddle or anything, she was launching herself off the side of the pool, uh, irrespective of how deep it might be, irrespective of whether I was there to watch or catch or be mindful of her safety, just, just Geronimo, every time, again and again and again, flinging herself with abandon into the water. She just saw water as this place of adventure and possibility and excitement. We heard last week, um, as we're going through Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, how he said that you will not enter the kingdom of God unless you receive it like a little child. And then what Luke does in his record of Jesus' life and times, he then gives us straight away a case study, a case study of a rich ruler, very different from a little child at surface level. And we're going to read about it. It's going to be in uh, Luke chapter 18 from verse 18 onwards. But it's a bit like a cliffhanger. What will this rich ruler do? Will he receive the kingdom of God like a little child? Or will the sophistication of adulthood hold him back? Would the trappings of money, sex, and power just be too much to let go uh, and abandon himself to Jesus? So we're going to read it from verse 18. It will come up behind me. Do open it in your Bibles because the passages around it are helpful to notice. Verse 18 of Luke 18 says this. A certain ruler asked him, asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is uh, rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who, who then 
can be saved. Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Heavenly Father, we again come to you asking you by your Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, we want to be those who receive the kingdom, receive salvation, receive the inheritance, the treasures of heaven. So Lord, we ask, would you help us open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to your truth and come in. Help us to respond to you with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, what fascinates me from this little account is that, that this rich ruler was attracted to the kingdom of God. He came and sought Jesus out. He wanted to ask Jesus the question. He was desperate, I think, to find out more. And he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that word that gets translated into our English often as eternal is actually age or epoch or era, a period of time. So really, I guess he's asking, what must I do to inherit the life of the age to come? He's referring to the future era of the kingdom of God coming to earth in all its fullness. Now, you might think I'm just splitting hairs on words there, but I think it's an important distinction. Whether or not you, eternal life appeals to you really depends on what you expect the context for that continuous existence of your life to be. I'm not sure if it's universally exciting to people, the prospect of living forever. But this guy, he'd got something. He was excited. He, he was keen. He, he wanted to find out what this coming age of God's kingdom, this new world under God's charge, and what it would be like and how you could get in. Kevin very helpfully defined for us last week the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, just again, another summary. The kingdom of God is the realm where God reigns and rules. It's his realm where he reigns and rules. But as a definition, it can sound abstract at best, maybe even bland, depending on your understanding of who God is. But for this rich ruler, he was excited. God's new world is coming. I want to be part of it. I want to be in on it. He caught something of the vision of what that was going to be like. And it can be hard for us, even as believers, if we are, to imagine what this new kingdom of God's better world would be like. I guess it's going to be like this world, but better. No, no, perfect. More enhanced, more wonderful, more beautiful than anything we're currently experiencing. Sometimes I think it's possibly easier to imagine in the absence of negatives. 
So in God's new world, there'll be no police or probation or prison because everybody will be kind and considerate and caring to one another. There'll be no A&E. There'll be no hospitals as we heard about. There'll be no NHS. Why? Because everyone is going to be perfectly well and healthy and vibrant. There'll be no cosmetics. That'd be a money saver. There'll be no care homes. There'll be no cemeteries because our skin won't wrinkle. Our bodies won't wear out. Death will never be tasted in God's new world. There'll be no charity shops, food banks, or debt counselling because nobody will be in need. Nobody will be left out. Nobody will be exploited. There'll be no bad news, no fake news, no celebrity gossip. Why? Because all conversation will be honouring and truthful and uplifting and upbuilding. There'll be no concerns. No concerns about climate change, about conflicts, about corruption in governments or anywhere else. Why? Because we'd be living sustainably. We'll be living safely. We'll be living selflessly. And you might say, Tim, this sounds glorious. This sounds such a utopia. How can you be so sure that it's going to be like that down the line? Where's, what's your hope based on? Well, it's based on who will be in charge. God will be in charge. One of the things it says about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is that the government will be on his shoulders. You see, many countries, uh, quite wisely, separate governmental powers. A bit of check and balance to make sure that things are, you know, stay on a steady course. So they might separate the legislature from the judiciary, from the executive powers. Because history, the history of the world has taught us that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's been our experience on earth. So who could shoulder this responsibility? Well, God can. Why? Because he is all-loving and all-wise, and all-powerful, because he cares, and he's honest, and he's fair, and he's just, and he's right, and he's true, and he can do anything, and he's able. He can contain all of that responsibility for all of eternity, and it will work because of who he is. And I think something of that hope had caught this rich ruler's attention. What will we call him? Well, Isaiah goes on to say after that passage, he says, we will, he will be known as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That's what we will call him because that's what we'll be experiencing of him in his new world. It won't be because of coercion or fear. We won't be forced to pronounce these things about our supreme ruler, Jesus Christ. That's who he is. That's who he will be seen to be. You see, this rich ruler, he had seemingly everything the world could offer. He had possessions and property. He had position and power. But he wanted entry into God's new and better kingdom. He wanted to know, what's the entrance criteria? How do I qualify? How do I get in on this? I think his question is genuine. I really do. Others might have come to Jesus with trick questions, trying to trip him up, trying to catch him out. But not this guy. I think it's a genuine question. He starts, good teacher. I'm told, actually, that's a very unusual greeting to a rabbi. It's not normal. It would have stood out. So I think maybe it's reasonable for Jesus to answer his question with another question in this case. He's not trying to be slippery. He's not trying to dodge the question. He says, why do you call me good? 
What's his motive? Is he being sarcastic? Oh, good teacher. Is he, is, he, is he being full of flattery? Is he trying to impress? Good teacher. Not very good at acting, but that's my, that's my attempt. Flatter. Is he, or, or does he recognize there's something about Jesus? Something. He's got an answer. He, he knows something about this kingdom. Um, is some respect in there. I think it's the latter. I, I really do. I, I think he believes Jesus has something to answer here. And then Jesus replies, well, no one is good except God alone, in verse 19. A short statement, but loaded with implications. They're subtle, but they're important. Let's just draw a couple of them out. You see, he's saying, if you're calling me good teacher, then you're saying I'm God, says Jesus. Because only, only God is truly good. No one else. See, Jesus can't simply be a nice guy. If you've read anything about him, if you look at his life, if you go on some of these courses like Alpha Just Looking, you will discover, no, 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 that's not really an option based on what he said, what he did. C.S. Lewis famously, for some of us who wrote uh, Chronicles of Narnia, was converted from atheism to Christianity. He explained this and articulated it very well. He said, look, really, the only remaining options for you are the, that Jesus is either mad, as mad as a poached egg, I think he said, or, or he's bad, He's as bad as the devil of hell, he said, or he's God. Nice guy. He's not just a nice guy. And Jesus is drawing out this implication. Is Jesus God? It's a question the rich ruler was challenged to answer. Go away and think about, perhaps. For you too, perhaps. You need to come to a conclusion on that one. Secondly, the other implication is that, therefore, if only God is good, then, then, then everyone else is not good. It's bad. Sin in each and every one of us. The entrance criteria, the qualification for entry into the kingdom of God. No, nowhere near them. Nowhere near them. Jesus doesn't wait for reply. He continues by listing five of the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 20 together. You know the commandments, he says. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony and honor your father and mother. And how does he reply to that, verse 21? I've done all these since I was a boy. Since I was the age of responsibility at 13 in a Jewish context, I've, I've, I've done these. I don't think the rich ruler's problem was his arrogance. I don't think that was his main problem. I think his problem was ignorance. He was blind to just how unqualified, how unable he was to enter the kingdom of God. You're listening so wonderfully. I'm sure it's a model of, oh, no, not, no, I've got my back, back to me now. Never mind. Jesus has cherry-picked five of the Ten Commandments. And it's not, it's not the first five, the last five, and he seems to have put them in a bit of a different order than anywhere else in Scripture. What's going on there? I think what he's done, he's selected certain behaviors towards other people, interactions with others that are off-limits according to the Old Testament law. And I think, therefore, it's very possible that this rich ruler guy had never had sex outside of marriage. He'd never killed anybody unlawfully. He'd never stolen from anybody. He'd never lied in court, and he was not estranged from his parents. That was possible. I think if we did a straw poll amongst ourselves, we won't. We may find that some of us could say the same. Since I was a boy, since I was a girl, I've, I've done these things. But what he and all of us need to realize is that the barrier to entry into the kingdom of God is much bigger and much broader 
than just a few behavioral traits. Interesting that Jesus doesn't directly, at least, challenge this self-assessment from the ruler. You see, the issue really is of the heart. Sin dwells in our hearts with attitudes, with thoughts, with intentions, as much as behaviors. And Jesus broached it in a number of different ways. And the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you can read it, he tried to highlight this, where he equated hatred with murder. He equated lust with adultery. He, he equated little white lies to big fat sworn oaths in court lies. They're the same as in terms of uh, the barrier to entry into God's kingdom. I think Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, uh, had a similar type of experience. The Holy Spirit broached this misunderstanding about the law. He, at one time, seemed to suggest that I, I've kept more commandments and you've had hot dinners. In Philippians 3, he says, according to the righteousness based on the law, I'm blameless. I'm faultless. But we get a bit more of his testimony, I think, in Romans chapter 7. It's a fascinating chapter, a little bit complicated at times. You scratch your head over it. But I think in there, Paul is revealing he, he got through the Ten Commandments and he got to number 10. Do not covet. And the Holy Spirit undid his heart. Because do not covet is by nature something that rests in the heart. Yes, it might manifest as stealing or adultery or theft or something else, but at its covetousness stage, it's a heart thing. To want somebody else's life or wife, to want somebody else's car or cat or whatever it might be, is, is, it starts here. And Paul discovered that I can't control it. I can't, I can't stop it. I, I can't take it away. I might be able to stop myself murdering somebody, but I can't stop this coveting thing. And he was undone. Ruined later on in 1 Timothy, he described himself, I'm the worst of sinners. And it threw him on the mercy of God. And I think that Jesus is doing the same type of thing with his rich ruler. He adds this sixth condition, verse 22. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give to the poor. Then come and follow me. See, giving everything you own to the poor isn't a universal prescription, but it is one that cut him right to the heart issue. The rich ruler might not have been killing or robbing or lying, but neither was he fulfilling the second greatest commandment that Jesus summarized in Luke chapter 10, to love your neighbor as yourself. If loving others is the essence of our relational law, then it's clearly got to be much more than simply not hurting or hating somebody. It's got to be much more positive than that. And he was a long way from that. Idolatry. Of course, he, Jesus could have gone to uh, the commandment number one, you shall have no other God before me, before him as God. And idolatry in any form contravenes that first commandment. We might think of bowing to statues or performing religious ceremonies to another deity, but we can be blind sometimes to, to the impersonal idols in our own hearts. And with one stroke, Jesus cut to the heart of the issue for this guy and revealed money, wealth, possession are your idol. You're putting them before God. 
You might think, wow, Tim, this all sounds really hard, really harsh. But just think about it for a minute. You see, when God's new world comes, and it's coming in all its fullness, how could anyone tarnish that perfection? Be let in. Surely it's only those who are going to love God exclusively, who are going to love others perfectly well, who, whose heart is only going to emit purity and honesty. Surely it's only those who can enter the kingdom of God without ruining it. See, if you snuck in through a back door in God's new kingdom, in his new world, what would happen? You might think for a minute, oh, I've got in. But a bit like if you were a carrier of the coronavirus coming back to your home country, it could end in pandemic. And just as we, we see brokenness and bitterness and, and strife and corruption permeating through this world, if we go into that one with a bit of that, then the whole process is going to start all over again. It cannot be allowed. It cannot happen. The rich ruler wasn't the only one saddened by Jesus' impossibly high standard. Those listening in, they said, despondently, I think, well, who, who then can be saved? See, there's nothing you can do at all to enter the kingdom of God. The question was ridiculous. What must I do? <laughs> it's the wrong question. As ridiculous, Jesus says, as, as trying to get a large, lumpy animal through the tiniest hole you can imagine. In other words, trying to get this camel through the eye of a needle. It's, it's silly. It's not going to happen. Foolishness. But what we can't do, God can do. In fact, God has done. He came himself to this world and became one of us to live the perfect life, to die the atoning death, to raise the victorious life that you couldn't, we couldn't, and didn't. And he now extends his invitation to you. This is my ticket. Take it. This is your entry into God's coming new world. That's what he does. And it takes just this simple, humble yet deliberate step. It's childlike to receive that ticket from him. To leave everything of this world behind and say, I'm taking none of it because I couldn't anyway. I'm taking you and you alone. To abandon and revoke every idol, anything we've put above God in our previous life. No, no, it's over. I'm going to follow him. You know, you can't hold on to anything of this world if you're going to throw yourself into God's new world by taking hold of this invitation. Any more than you can jump into a swimming pool while still trying to hold on to the sides or stay on the steps. It's not going to work. You've got to abandon it and throw yourself in. You've got to plunge into Jesus. You've got to say, Lord... I'm a sinner. Oh, I can't do anything. But I want in on your new kingdom. 
and on your new world. I believe, Jesus, that you are God. I believe, Jesus, that you rose again from the dead, and I'm surrendering to you. If this is a kingdom, then you must be the king. With all and absolute power, in charge of everything, I'm going to bow the knee to you. And I'm going to give you an opportunity in a few minutes to do just that. You're ready to do that. But before, I just want to highlight a few things to us as a church, because I did feel that this passage is particularly pertinent to us. Rich, influential people are disproportionately probably in, in the mix around here. The demographics will dis display as much. Not only is Britain a relatively wealthy nation, not only is the Southeast relatively wealthy, but Oxted, when I was looking it up before moving here, was the 20th least affordable place to live in the country. There's a reason for that. You might not be one of them, but don't worry, there are a lot of them around you, down your street, that you have as customers, perhaps, who are your colleagues, and sometimes we do get discouraged. Oh, they're like this rich ruler. They're not seemingly responding to the prayers, to the offer, and we can get discouraged. When I first read this passage, I was discouraged. The rich ruler went away. And so often is that our experience. But then the Lord encouraged me. I want to pass this on. Uh, I was reading this and thinking, Lord, you're seeming to say that for rich folk, it's more than impossible for them to enter the rich. More impossible than it would be for other people. And then I thought about it. Hold on a minute. That's impossible. It can't be more than impossible about anything. And anyway, it's all possible in God. So there we go. So that one dispelled that one. Secondly, we don't know the end of this rich man's story. We don't know. This is just phase one. There could have been a phase two. And it's the same with the people that we interact with. We don't know. We keep going in prayer like we're doing this Tuesday night. Thank you, Claire, for that encouragement. And as we pray, God changes us. And as God pray, as we pray, things are changed. So we're going to keep praying. We're going to keep witnessing. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep believing. And, and, and thirdly, I was encouraged because shortly after this account, only a few verses on in chapter 19, we get case study number two of receiving the kingdom of God like a little child. And again, it's a rich, influential man, just like this example. His name was Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, and he was very corrupt, we assume. And at a dinner party, in front of everybody, but really to Jesus, unprompted, he said, today, I'm going to sell half my possessions and give it all to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody, and he probably had, I'm going to repay back four times to each one of them. And Jesus said, Today, salvation has come to this household. Wow, isn't that wonderful for Luke to place that right next to this other one? To go encourage us. He entered the kingdom of God like a child. With all his riches, with all his corruption, with all his sophistication, with all his challenges, all his hang-ups, with all his security, he let go of it all. And I'm following Jesus now. It can happen. And lo and behold, there are other rich folk who come to faith in the Bible. We have Joseph of Arimathea. He had this posh tomb. He gave it up for the use of Jesus' body. We had Barnabas in the early church. He had multiple properties, and he sold loads of them and gave the proceeds to the church for the advance of God's kingdom. We hear of Lydia, the, uh, the fashion entrepreneur, who had a thriving business, it would seem, in, in, in purple cloth. Uh, it was a fashionable colour back then, uh, as I'm displaying here. Um, very fashionable, very fetching. It just lifts the face. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's on my colour chart. I know I'm joking. And, uh, and she, she, she had this palatial home, and she let the church meet in it. 
But God can do it, and God's going to do it again. God's going to do it here. There's no hard area for God. It's all impossible for us. Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Secondly, church, I want to encourage you to proclaim, to preach, to share, to talk about the coming kingdom of God. I think this is what really impressed upon me. Uh, See, it was the good news of the coming of God's new and perfect world that attracted this rich ruler to inquire further. Though I think it's important for us to excite people about the end of salvation, as much as it is important to explain the means of salvation. Don't get me wrong, we've got to tell people about forgiveness of sin. Of course, we've got to talk about relationship with God. Freedom in Christ is really relevant for people's lives where they're at these days. Understanding the things of the spirit and the supernatural is exciting. But ultimately, it's about God's kingdom coming and starting again in a new world with a new earth and a new heaven with no seeming join between the two. Set up as it was originally planned, but even better so than we could imagine. And I think that might just excite some folk because it's true. And sometimes we dial down that bit or forget about it. We get focused on the, the how-to rather than what's to come. So I think let's, let's do that. Let's excite people with that. I think it will connect with what people are concerned about. They're concerned about the future, what kind of planet we're leaving for future generations and their children. No, no, we've got the answer. We know the outcome. Are you in? And thirdly, I'd encourage you, uh, church, to each think, how, how am I contributing to us being God's family on earth? Change of gear slightly, but it's here in the passage. Peter, verse 28, often the spokesman for the 12, he, he said, oh, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And they had. Fishing businesses, civil servant jobs, families and homes, they left it all to follow Jesus. And Jesus so lovingly, so graciously reassures them, but they're not empty words or empty promises. Verse 29, truly I tell you, says Jesus, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children, they're all family words, they're all home words, they're all relational words, for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in when? This age. We're talking about the coming kingdom. Yes, now, in the here and now and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, for some, the cost of following Jesus means rejection from family. Ask an ex-Muslim who's come to Christ. For some, the cost of following Jesus will be the loss of friends, maybe jobs, maybe community. Read about some of the Christians in China. You know, for some, coming to Jesus is going to be the loss of marriage opportunity, of intimate companionship through life. Ask those who are gay and Christian or same-sex attracted and Christian and wanting to follow Jesus. And you see, entry into God's eternal kingdom also means entry into God's earthly family. Are you being a parent? or a friend, or a brother, or a sister, to others across the life of King's Church? Is your home an embassy of God's kingdom, where others who are citizens of heaven like you can come and be? Be 
loved, be friended, be long. Are you in and out of each other's lives like that? Are you being family to others around you? There's all sorts of ways that God can work that out. But I do want to promote again our life groups. They're not the be-all or an end-all of church life. They're not the panacea for all things. But their primary function, their primary reason, their vision is for them to be families in King's Church. Mini families. And I know life groups are hard work, and I know they're inconvenient, and I know sometimes you have to work things through because there's fallout and all the rest of it, but we need to invest because it's then that we're fulfilling the promise that Jesus said here, that any relational cost of following Jesus will be more than offset by the church. That's who we're to be to one another. We've had some wonderful testimonies that have highlighted the importance of that family life together. Uh, Paul Dufour, been in hospital for six months. We heard about last week from Rosemary. He's been in and out, been in uh, psychiatric wards and everything for six months. And it's been wonderful to get a bit of an oversight as to people visiting and praying and supporting and connecting with his one family member biologically who's challenged on being able to be there very often, but gaining that connection. It's been wonderful to watch and observe the family of God. And some of that would have happened anyway, I'm sure, but I'm sure Paul has experienced family because he's been in a life group for years. And people have walked with him. Christian and uh, Pamela and their family testified only last Sunday that they were contemplating being homeless. I mean, just through circumstance, not through financial you know, trouble in that sense, but you know, renting, and it's complicated, and you can be full between the gaps in a moment. And he was gracious in just pointing out across the church people that have supported them, prayed for them, helped them out, offered homes for them for that period. But why did it come about? It's because I gave them a bell the day before. I didn't give him a bell the day before because I, I work at the church office or I'm one of the leaders who's paid to do such things. It wasn't because of that. I called him the day before because I'm in his life group. And we'd, week on week or fortnight on fortnight, we'd been following the story, hearing the, late, the latest challenge. Oh, we've got to move out or we can stay. No, we can move out. We can stay. Oh, let us stay a bit longer. No, we won't. The night before, no, you can't stay any longer. That was the message. And they'll try and look for other places and it's all falling through because it's difficult to find an affordable place around here for a family of five. And so I thought, oh, I had it in my diary. Oh, yeah, tomorrow's the day they're meant to be moving out. I wonder if they've got anything I haven't heard. Find them up. No, it's all falling through. We don't know what to do. And then the church came together and provided a solution. Thank God it wasn't required to some extent because things kind of worked out at the 11th hour. But it was because he's in a life Anyway, can we stand together? I did say I'd give an opportunity, and I'm going to give it now. For anyone who would want to, like this rich ruler, initially anyway, receive entry into God's new world that is coming. I'd encourage you as you stand, if you're able to, to just close your eyes, every one of you. And if you're ready to take the step, the simple step of trust and receive the invitation, the ticket of Jesus that will allow you into God's kingdom, 
And I want to encourage you to put your hand up right now. Everyone's eyes are shut. I might open mine just to see who's put it up. But other than that, no one's watching. I think it's important. It's important that you make a deliberate, physical response that echoes your heart. Like a child. Putting your hand up. That's you. I'd encourage you to do that right now. And with everyone's eyes closed, pray this prayer in your heart. Dear Jesus, I do believe that you are God. And Jesus, I do believe that you are good. And I do believe, Jesus, that you rose from the dead and are alive. And Jesus, I, I come with nothing I can offer as entry into your new kingdom. Yet I come with my faith. I put my faith in you. I entrust my whole life to you. I let go of everything else that I've put before. I let go of all the things that this world has to offer. And I declare you as my king, as my Lord, as my master, as my friend. I receive your new life right now. Come into me by your Holy Spirit. Bring me assurance of forgiveness and of your Father's love and of my eternal existence with you in glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you did pray that prayer, God bless you. Do come and speak to us. I'll be at the uh, desk at the back at the end. I'd love to chat to you. Um, Jim, I would ask maybe for a guitar-y thing to, to strike up. But for the, for the church, uh, I do want to come back to this theme that uh, this passage really resonates with us. And uh, I just want to be one of those that says, Lord, would you come and anoint me, us again, to bring your good news to the rich and influential? And if you want that kind of anointing, if you want to join with me in asking the Lord for that kind of blessing, because you know those kinds of people, and you've prayed for those kinds of people, and they're in your circle of life, then I'd encourage you to come and join me at the front. And we're just simply going to ask for the Holy Spirit to anoint us.